Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. The beginning of 2021 has been defined by a deadly second wave of the pandemic, precarious geopolitical relations, and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host Shibani Mehta and this week we're diving deep into China's economic aid to South Asia. China's meteoric economic rise has resulted in a massive expansion of its international economic aid and development programs. Under the Belt and Road Initiative, analysts predict that China could spend close to 1.2 trillion dollars on global development projects ranging from building cyber infrastructure to large scale connectivity projects these programs have placed china as an attractive alternative to the established players in the global development space however china's growing role in global economic development has also resulted in increased scrutiny according to some analysts chinese development aid is often unsustainable for the host country creating onerous debt obligations while making only marginal contributions to local employment in this episode of interpreting india we analyze china's economic and development aid in south asia how has china's profile as a key economic partner developed in the south asian region what impact has china's economic aid had on its political influence in the region and finally how should india respond to china's clout in south asia joining us today to discuss this is deep pal deep pal is a visiting scholar in the asia program at carnegie endowment for international peace he is also a non resident fellow at the national bureau of asian research before this he worked with nbr the center for strategic and international studies in washington dc and at the institute of international relations in taipei he also has a decade experience as a broadcast journalist for some of the most watched television stations in india deep has recently authored the paper china's influence in south asia vulnerabilities and resilience in four countries hi deep welcome to the other side of the mic on interpreting india uh we're very excited to have you join us for this episode and talk to us about china's engagement in the region of south asia thank you thank you shivani it's it's indeed a pleasure and uh, interesting to be as you said on the other side of the mic so let's uh, dive right into it um so the the first thing uh, that i wanted to ask you is about the chinese model of economic aid um when compared to what are called the more traditional say the world bank or the international monetary fund what are some of the characteristics that make china an attractive donor for south asian countries like sri lanka nepal bangladesh or even the maldives yeah that's a, that's a really interesting question because um what we see when it comes to chinese assistance is that it is it does not follow the same cookie cutter kind of model that you know uh, more traditional uh, assistance giving organizations or countries do right and what do i mean by that so for example one of the key aspects in which the aid or the assistance uh, differs in in case of china is that there is no domestic 
uh, governance related provision, right? When it comes to ADB or when it comes to any of the other agencies, one of the things that they say is that, you know, democratization norms are looked at. Uh, they, they look at anti-corruption issues and things like that. For example, there have been projects in Bangladesh, which the World Bank dropped out of because of corruption concerns, right? So in case of China, one of the first things we see is that China says that these are all issues that are internal to a country and therefore they don't really care about them, right? How a country deals with democratization, corruption, and so on and so forth is, is something that the country has to figure out that does not um, interfere with the, the, the uh, decision by Chinese entities to whether or not fund projects or give loans to these countries. So that's that's one of the major things. And you know, if you if you look at all of these countries, these are all countries where institution building is a is still a continuous process, right? So there are these issues that all of them grapple with. They, in all fairness, they try to fix many of the things. Some of the things work uh, immediately. Some of the things are longer term. Uh, China's decision to fund them or not fund them is not based on these structural issues. So that's that's a very key aspect. That is something that these countries like. The other aspect is um, one of the things that we noticed while we were working on this project is, is that you know Chinese stakeholders, uh, whether they are um, uh, whether they are uh, the, whether it's the embassy, whether it's uh, Chinese companies, whether state-owned companies or other companies that are working in these countries, Chinese journalists and so on and so forth, they work in tandem. So when a country needs something, uh, if one of the stakeholders, one of the Chinese stakeholders come to know about it, they pass it on and, and the conversation begins from there, right? So we heard a stakeholder in a, one of these countries talk about how they had they had talked about some tourism-related work they, that they wanted done, some tourism-related assistance that they were looking for. And to this person's surprise, in a couple of days, they someone from the Chinese embassy reached out with options saying that, you know, we heard that you were looking for something like this. Uh, we have these options. We have these people that you might want to talk with and, and see where it goes, right? So so on, in, in many of the cases, Chinese assistance comes to these people, right? Instead of them having to go looking for money, looking for assistance, looking for how this works out. Another interesting aspect is, and this is again something that we heard from a number of uh, stakeholders in, in multiple countries, is that in cases where the countries feel that they don't have the bandwidth to uh, understand or manage these complicated financial instruments, China very often comes and says, Chinese entities, very often they come and say that, okay, once you agree, we will take care of the back end. We will help you figure out how to do the back end. And you can start your work within, let's say, six months. Speed, another very interesting aspect that these countries talk about, right? Where uh, when you go to a World Bank or an ADB, various boxes have to be checked. It, it's a long drawn process. Someone we spoke with said that, you know, if I want to work with a Chinese company, from the time I speak to them first to the time when the project gets off ground, uh, six months would have elapsed, right? So, so all of these factors are important. Another important factor that I really want to emphasize here, Shivani, is the fact that not all of these decisions are taken only from the governance-related approach. There is a, a strong political uh, uh, purpose as well. What do I mean by that? Essentially, in many cases, um, let's say a government has, has gotten elected in one of these countries. Chinese entities approach them and say that, you know, um, one of the, and, and we all know that for all of these countries, uh, infrastructure projects are very important, right? It is, it is top in, the, in their list of priorities. So, so a Chinese entity or someone from the Chinese embassy or from a Chinese company would approach someone in the government and say that, you know, we know that you really need this bridge or this highway or this airport or some other infrastructure project. 
why don't you help us uh, why, why don't you let us help you with it and and we are going to make sure that this is ready before the next elections now from a political point of view this is a very attractive proposition for for almost all political parties for almost all uh, uh, political entities in south asia essentially what this what what this chinese uh, prop, uh, proposal means is that by the time this political party is up for election again they will already have a major project that they can showcase they can point at it and say that you know uh, this bridge it it uh, got made in the last 3 years or 4 years and and here it is right that gives them an immediate advantage over other domestic political actors so these are some of the reasons why why this this uh, form of development assistance beca- has become so attractive to these countries i'll pick up on one of the last um, reasons that you mentioned which was uh, infrastructure projects and how they serve a political purpose for the country uh, that is receiving the sort of um, aid and any kind of assistance from china that was very highly debated amongst uh, the scholars and experts Uh, around the world and a common narrative that uh, surrounds the chinese development aid is how that impacts the local states autonomy and first if i take the sri lanka example forward uh, there was a lot of uh, criticism of china in um, in sri lanka would mean that the local sort of institutions would have to surrender their power or by agreeing to the conditions that china was uh, laying Uh, it wouldn't have uh, agency i think to what extent has the debt trap issue played out in china's economic outreach to south asia the the way i would look at this question is is there, there are multiple aspects to this one is that i think the debt trap perspective or the or the the debt trap angle in the discourse is 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 not really the entire story and i'll explain in a minute why before i get to that of course you, you mentioned the entire port city bill the, the the developments in sri lanka and yes there are questions of 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 sovereignty there are questions of uh, what china expects you know in in exchange for all the assistance uh, that they that they render to these countries and and uh, that is something that we have seen during the project i mean china is has become more and more uh careful about or or insistent on controlling the narrative about how they are presented in the country right um we have seen various ways in which uh china has reached out to the media or various various actors in in the civil society about how they are talked about right and and either try to coax them cajole them even even push them right uh use maybe friendly arms of the government in that particular country and 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 uh, tell these In, and try to pressure these agencies into writing um uh, or or talking well about them right so there is there is that concern there's no doubt about that but at the same time this this narrative of of debt traps right uh being the being in any chinese money the moment it comes it it it, it is basically trapping the country into this net of debt that they won't be able to get out of i think the problem with this narrative is that it's oversimplified oversimplified and it does not uh talk about the agency that these countries have right when you when you look at any of these countries they have a great deal of say in who they want to partner with right and if they are partnering with china today for development projects or for anything else 
that there is a very strong instrumentalist reason to uh, reason for it it basically means that they have looked at various options and this is the op- the option that china is offering them seems to be the one that is working the best for them right i mean when we talk about uh, the united states or or its uh, partners and uh, uh, allies or we talk about india which is a big presence in the region obviously um, why why are these countries not going with these countries and going with china there is that is that is not an ideological decision that is guided by the fact that these countries are looking at the options presented in front of them and finding that the chinese option is the is the one that works for them the best right now now that may be a purely governance related decision that may be a political decision that may be that may have various reasons why they why they feel that way but it is essentially a decision that is guided by what they think is best for them at the moment now that's that's one the second point is you know uh, when when people talk about the debt trap what they don't consider is that in many cases we have seen these countries go for options of financing that are not necessarily chinese for example um if you if you look at these countries uh, uh, you'll find that bangladesh prefers soft loans over commercial loans we have seen a deep sea port project in bangladesh that was being made with chinese assistance with chinese money being cancelled because bangladesh found uh, japan uh, agreeing to make a, a, another deep sea port very close to this earlier proposed project for a far lower cost they were getting a soft loan they were getting uh, it it for uh, 30 years or so and financially it made so much more sense so they chose to shift to this if you look at nepal nepal in fact prefers grants over soft loans so these countries are all extremely careful to go for um, options where the money is cheaper now are there not instances where they still go for chinese loans uh, where it's more expensive yes they do and and there may be internal structural uh, corruption related or various other um, uh, reasons that lead them to do that it would however be wrong to to try and paint the entire region in that one brush where you know everyone's falling under a debt trap now we can come to sri lanka right where this entire conversation about debt trap is is the most severe now sri lanka right now and and this is a, a study from i think last year which found that about 6% or so of sri lanka's external debt is actually held by chinese right uh, by chinese entities now sri lanka is not in a position where they are in a debt trap right now but at the same time sri lanka's economy needs a lot of help right now and there are very few entities very few countries uh, around the world that would agree to fund sri lanka right now the chinese however are okay with doing it and that is where uh, uh, the concern of debt trap comes in if if it continues like this then yes there is a possibility that eventually there will be a debt trap for sri lanka uh, related to chinese money if if uh, other entities across the world or the countries uh, they agree to fund sri lanka's economy and and assistance needs then that may not be the case i think that's that's an important distinction that one needs to remember that is a very important conversation to have because uh, like you mentioned it's not like countries in south asia are just looking at china um we do know that sri lanka is employing multiple means to kind of boost its economy uh, which are not all dependent on china they're looking at currency swaps 
um, Sri Lanka has reached out to other financial institutions for aid and sort of financial assistance. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's that is an important point to make. I just want to move back to something that you mentioned earlier, which was about when we were talking about why Chinese aid is attractive, um, where you said China's model is to kind of respond to the needs of the South Asian country and to, uh, like, it's. I think you use the term cookie cutter model, um, where they're listening to what they uh, what the South Asian country is asking for, and sort of changing the the package, if I may, of aid according to needs. And there are no sort of, um, no strings are attached to this. But is it right to say that there isn't a sort of political influence that this creates? How does assistance from Beijing politically influence these countries in South Asia? And I think the second question that comes from this is, how does the Chinese political influence mean for other powers that have interests in the region? Absolutely. I mean, Shivani, you know, so one of the things that that we do say in this report is that China's uh, uh, levers, primary levers are at the moment economic, right? But at the same time, their primary interest in the region is strategic, right? And basically what that means is that because, um, as I have as mentioned before, for most of these countries, their list of priorities includes a lot of uh, connectivity or infrastructure projects right so that is usually and that is some that is an area in which china is uh, in in a good position to try and help them right so that is that is primarily why uh, they start entering uh, these countries or they start uh, 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 you know engaging with these countries from the infrastructure assistance uh, development perspective but at the same time, and, and this is something, again, uh, I keep going back to the report because this is something that we focused on a great deal. If you look at the way the relationship has changed in the last eight, 10 years, right, uh, there has been way more uh, political uh, engagement between the two sides. I mean, uh, look at Nepal. Is that the Chinese Communist Party and its various arms? have been reaching out to political parties in all of these countries okay uh, they have been holding you know joint study sessions with them they have been holding conferences with them they have been uh, 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 talking to them for 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 various things and it especially helps in, in we see this in, in have seen this in in particularly two countries one of them is nepal where uh, you know there is ideological affinity or there was ideological affinity as well uh, as long as the uh, communist party was in power uh, till uh, earlier in 2021 right uh, so so you know for the communist party of, of of in china and for the communist party in nepal there were a lot of things that they felt they could engage or not talk with uh, Another place where you see this quite often is Sri Lanka, where uh, you know a vast number of political parties uh, have come together and engaged uh, with Chinese uh, uh, with the Chinese Communist Party. Now that is that is the political side of things. Another aspect in which we have seen China engage far more is the people to people aspect, where uh, Chinese companies that are present in these countries, the Chinese entities that are present in these countries, they are helping. Uh, build infrastructure in, let's say, schools in the areas that they are operating out of, right? Uh, uh, they are do donating um, infrastructure or, or they're, they're donating uh, books and, and 
uh, various other kind of material that an organization might need. They're tying up with universities, um, not just for the study of the language, of, of, of the Chinese language, but also for uh, uh, the study of China or China and this particular country's relations, right? Um, we are seeing uh, engagements that take the form of um, fellowships and, and uh, financial awards of various kinds, which are directed towards students in some cases, but also towards you know, research professionals or towards journalists, right? Uh, basically offering them an opportunity to go to China for a year or at times more and, and to know more about the country, right? So this is something that we have seen happen over the last few years where um, they, they, uh, the, the attempt is to have a whole of society approach in their engagement uh, with these various countries, with, with, uh, 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 with Sri Lanka, with Nepal, uh, with Bangladesh, with the Maldives. And that is also necessitated by the fact that uh, in some of these countries, for example, when you look at Nepal, right? Nepal has had a very long-standing trade-based, uh, 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 family relationships-based uh, uh, connection with Tibet already, right? So uh, they have not been unfamiliar with China. But if you look at the Maldives, China is a far more recent entrant. Right, they they uh, they obviously have known about China, but interactions have been limited for the longest time. So uh, when when these kind of pushes come that that help address uh, the the relationship from all aspects of society, it really has helped China uh, be at the front and center of the minds of the of the people and of governments of institutions in in these various countries. I'm, I'm sorry, I've, I've forgotten. What was the other question you asked? My second question was, what does increased engagement from Beijing in the region mean for other powers? So uh, say India and the United States, how does it impact their influence in the region? I think what it means for other powers in the region is that uh, they will have to try extra hard to uh, keep the countries in the region engaged, right? Uh, because all of these countries now, you know, we, we are far more connected now uh, globally than we were even 10 years or 15 years or 20 years ago, right? So anyone sitting in um, the farthest corners of uh, Maldives or Sri Lanka or Nepal or wherever, right? They, they, if, they, if, they have a, if they have an internet connection, if they have a smartphone, they can find out about what is happening in the world, how people in various aspects, various parts of the world live, what are the options and opportunities uh, that are available to them? Now, this is something that they want for themselves. This is something that they ask for, for from their governments, right? And for the governments then to give their citizens the kind of opportunities that are available globally, they turn to various partners, which basically means that they would essentially have to try extra hard. I, I talked about earlier uh, how uh, Chinese companies or Chinese entities they come to these countries and say, you know, if you need a bridge, why don't we help you with it, right? So they, they are far more proactive, right? So this, this proactiveness is something um, that, that various countries uh, or various agencies, whoever wants to stay engaged with these countries, they will have to show. One of the questions that stakeholders across the region, when we were speaking with them, raised repeatedly that what is, let's say, the U.S.'s long-term uh, plan in South Asia, right? Um, what are the what are the various what what is US's South Asia policy, right? Essentially, what this means is that there will have to be a clear, uh, consistent, long-term policy that will have to be in the play 
for these countries to look at the various countries. The same stakeholders who, who talked about, who asked, you know, what is US's uh, long-term policy in South Asia, they also pointed at China and said, look at China and Sri Lanka. There was a lot of controversy over the Hambantota project. There was a lot of uh, controversy over the Port City project, uh, but China did not leave. They kept their head down. They waited it out. They continued with their work. And, you know, they, they worked towards the completion of the projects uh, uh, as they had promised to these countries. Of course, the entire aspect of whether these are, these are viable projects or not viable projects is a valid question, and that needs to be discussed as well. But at the same time, they were the, the, the impression that the Chinese entities, Chinese companies, Chinese players in these countries give when they stay on throughout controversy and questioning is that they are consistent and reliable partners who are here for the longer term. Now, for India, for others, the question of consistency is going to be primary. What can these countries, what can these uh, 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 these these powers, India, US, or anyone else, what can they do for these countries uh, consistently, reliably, and for the longer term? That is what these countries are essentially asking. When um, you spoke about China's whole of society approach, uh, you used two specific examples. One was a shared political ideology between Nepal and China, um, which I think has played out in a lot of ways. But um, one that comes to my mind is um, training Nepali politicians in um, in Xi Jinping thought that the Chinese Communist Party conducted as a workshop. And uh, you also spoke about the cultural ties and uh, how it is, the whole of society approach uh, that China follows is quite different from what other donors would uh, follow, which is tied to a specific infrastructure project or a development program. Um, I want to know if uh, through your research, you have found that the, the countries in the region that are receiving Chinese assistance, is are there any common characteristics or even say strengths and weaknesses that these countries have, um, which China is able to tap into? Yeah, Shivani. So, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And one of the things that faced us when we were looking at these four countries is uh, how how does one draw parallels between them, right? Because we are we are trying to understand Chinese presence in the region, and and at least thematically, one does need to have some kind of um, parallels, some kind, some ways of 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 uh, measuring, right? Uh, how these countries, uh, these very different countries, are, are are faring, right? I mean, and one of the first things that we saw was similar was that. Um, all of these countries, they they need infrastructure projects, right? They need connectivity projects. They need um, highways, airports, ports, um, power plants, and so on and so forth. But beyond that, they're all very different countries. I mean, countries like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh are, are uh, regional, uh, uh, are, are countries that are uh, climbing out of their, uh, you know, LDC status, right? Uh, on the other hand, Maldives is, is, a, is a much smaller country which has, uh, which is an island which has uh, climate change uh, related concerns which where where the focus areas are quite different now which is why uh, one of the ways in which we try to understand uh, the impact of chinese engagement in the region was through what we call the vulnerabilities framework right and what do we mean by that we look at three particular dimensions uh, one is 
uh, how how, uh, how are how are uh, the state institutions doing in the face of uh, increased Chinese engagement? Another is what is what is uh, how how is the how are civil society components, you know, organizations and individuals doing? Uh, and the third is what is uh, uh, what role uh, do the elites play? Are they are these elites capturable or or are they already captured? Right. So these are these are three particular uh, dimensions or variables, right, that we tried to uh, uh, analyze in looking at these countries. And the reason why this helps is if you if you think of them, uh, there are indicators as parts of these three uh, variables that are common across the countries, right? So uh, let's say uh, uh, corruption or electoral practices or strength of the constitution or uh, things like how easy or difficult is it for civil society organizations to operate in these countries? What kind of pressures do they face? Uh, legally, uh, how protected are they? Or uh, when you look at uh, elites, whether they are capturable or captured or not, um, what are the various kind of checks and balances that exist to ensure uh, that political or business elites, you know, they uh, are not influenced or influenceable, right? And that is something that really uh, made a lot of difference. And, and what we could do was also form a kind of a scale through which we could look at these four countries where they uh, appear uh, in, in terms of their relative strengths or weaknesses when it comes to institutions or civil societies or uh, uh, or their uh, uh, of their or, or their elites now what this also does is it it uh, gives us an idea uh, of where these which direction these countries might go for example one of the things that we found with bangladesh was that uh, their state institutions while uh, they are, they are not the weakest, there have been questions about their electoral practices, right? Now, uh, they are up for elections in a couple of years. Uh, if the elections are considered free and fair, then we would possibly see this, the, the institutions being strengthened, which will allow less leeway for a player like China, which may want to move in and uh, influence state institutions, less space to be able to do so. Uh, similarly, in Sri Lanka, we found that you know the, uh, the 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 capturability of the elites was the biggest concern in Sri Lanka in comparison to all of these uh, countries. And the reason for that we know is is the Rajapaksas uh, have been working with China in ways that uh, uh, have been concerning since their previous tenure. Right now, if in a future election we see the Rajapaksas being replaced by someone and and there being a dialing down of the ways in which uh, China manages to uh, uh, capture the elites, then that again becomes less of a concern. So we found that these, these are very useful tools. This, this framework is a very useful tool when you look at it from these three particular perspectives, institutions, uh, freedom of civil societies to operate, as well as the impact of Chinese influence on elites, whether they are being captured or are they captureable in some way or the other. It is a very unique way of understanding the levers that China is using in the region and uh, the the scope of impact that each of them has in these countries. Um, so just to continue with this, uh, you had mentioned earlier that these states that are receiving financial assistance uh, from China are operating out of self-interest. It is not that they are taking whatever is being offered 
uh, to them they they have certain demands that they do place and uh, i think the example you mentioned was about uh, bangladesh uh, bangladesh choosing japan over china for a particular project did you find that countries in south asia were also learning from each other in terms of uh, how to put their demands to china and in certain cases maybe be able to push back as well or uh, does everyone just accept uh, whatever's being offered because china is a big power it's intimidating and as a small state um, you're happy to get uh, what you're given oh, oh absolutely not i mean all of these countries as i have said time and again you know there's a we we tend to underestimate the kind of agency right that these countries uh, uh clearly have and demonstrate as having um so so uh, for example uh, the the bangladeshi uh, uh, someone in the bangladeshi government did talk about how they are looking at you know and they were asked this question by an indian journalist and uh, about chinese debt trap and so on and they said that don't think that we are not looking at other countries don't think that we are not looking at what is happening in djibouti or what is happening in other parts of the world or other parts of the region to understand how chinese influence works and that is largely something that most uh, stakeholders that i have spoken with they tend to repeat that we may not have you know uh, government to government conversations uh, uh, about how to work with china or how to deal with china right but that does not mean that we are not looking at what china is doing in the region and how it is working out for the countries uh, the sri lanka example keeps coming up every once in a while right where there are uh, instances of unviable projects right and that is something that uh, all of these countries have definitely learned from each other and uh, and they are very careful to look at these projects and be uh, and ask themselves is this something that that is going to be viable for us so that's that's one of the things that we have seen them learn from each other we have uh, seen uh, 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 maldives and sri lanka unofficially uh, having a conversation about uh, uh, the 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 loans that that the chinese loans that they have taken which in a post covid uh, situation are are difficult to uh, repay following the earlier schedules uh there have been conversations unofficially in in various uh, amongst various stakeholders in these countries about whether they can ask for some kind of a restructuring from china which they have already done or will do uh but but whether or not these countries learn from each other in terms of uh how they think uh they can operate in this region how they think they can uh, work with china and essentially the 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 purpose of them engaging with each other has to do with figuring out how to get a better deal how to how to get a better bargaining hand both for themselves individually and as a collective so there are being lessons learned by watching each other and uh, seeing how other countries in the region navigate uh, china's engagement um and but i'd like to go back to a point that you were making earlier about other powers with an interest in the region uh, namely the united states and india um where you said one thing that these that can be done uh, would be to be as consistent as china is in terms of its engagement because we are about interpreting india um my last question to you is how does 
Beijing's growing um, footprint in the region influence uh, or rather impact New Delhi's position? And would you say that uh, India is adapting to this new reality where it is no longer the um, economic and political um, power in the neighborhood? So I think, Shivani, the way to look at it is, uh, is, is by acknowledging that no country right in 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 this changed globalized world and where we are talking about the post post cold war uh, era emerging right no country is what it used to be right um, I, I i think uh, for for new delhi there are an, a number of things that uh, are being done but also need to be done right uh, and and that is true not just for new delhi that is true for the us for for anyone any country that is uh, interested in the region um the the way that we have uh, uh, been you know uh, uh, the the kind of relationship that we have had with these had with these countries they will continue to exist in some ways the the historical the cultural uh, relationships that we have had with them uh, that is that is irre- irreplaceable right i mean uh, many of my conversations with these stakeholders has started by talking about uh, as much of a cliche as this is has started by talking about either cricket or about uh, indian movies uh, that is just how it is um, but at the same time uh, something that is interesting to note is that you know in from most of these countries that we are talking about um, influx of uh, students right used to primarily be to india right higher education was primarily about studying in india that is no longer the case uh, students are a lot of students are going to china and and that is guided by uh, better um, uh, financial aid financial assistance available uh, from the chinese government and and many of them are not even going to china they are they are going beyond they are going to australia they are going to uh, 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 singapore and and various other countries so so that is something that has to be understood and remembered now in this <clears throat> change situation how does new delhi stay relevant i think new delhi has still a lot to offer in terms of helping these countries uh, build their capacity right uh, in in terms of uh, uh, assisting them in in connectivity projects now what these countries are asking for today is basically india engaging them as equal partners you know when we when we talk about uh, having familial relations with these countries and this is again something a stakeholder mentioned to me that you know in a family you always have an elder brother and a younger brother want to be looked at and talked to as as equal partners right uh, and that is something that that is uh, of a great deal of significance another way in which new delhi can remain and is remaining significant uh, relevant in the region is by uh, ironically doing uh, what china does as i as i mentioned china comes in looks at the country and sees what they need and then starts a conversation from there so for new delhi the the uh, uh, there has to be an approach that prioritizes what these countries need so essentially not necessarily look at what china is doing but basically talk to these countries and say okay what is it that you need essentially dehyphenate uh, indian engagement with these countries from chinese or in, for that matter anyone else's presence instead prioritizing what these particular countries need to be uh, there so these these are some of the ways uh, in which in which india can continue to be relevant uh, 
as i as i i just want to end with uh, this this one aspect that you know we we uh, tend to look at every small or big development uh, in these in these countries uh, from the indian lens that you know what this means for india it would help us as as uh, students of international relations if we looked at them and acknowledged that not everything has to do with india or has to do with an external player in many cases these countries are just trying to achieve their own aspirations and choosing the best available route to them if we can provide those routes if india can provide those routes then then i don't see why any of these countries uh, would not want to choose that thank you so much deep uh, this has been an enlightening conversation um i think i take away two points uh, from what your report has uh, concluded which is the vulnerabilities framework is is an important tool to understand the niche uh, the region and um, i think it helps us overcome this oversimplification of of the entire region that we so often tend to do and the second being that instead of focusing on india china rivalry or us china rivalry in the region let's talk about the states that make up the region and what they need and how they go about um, achieving their aspirations um so thank you so much thank you thank you shivan it's been a pleasure we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode to make sure you don't miss it be sure to subscribe on apple podcast spotify stitcher or wherever you get your podcast to learn more about our research and team you can visit us at carnegieindia.org you can also find us on social media on twitter facebook and instagram thank you for listening see you next time